the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Mark. Of course, he doesn't, you know, believe that it's God, but, but here he goes. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these Out of all the commandments the Lord has given, do you know which of them are most important? As you listen to today's message from Pastor Gary, he teaches you that the disciples in Jesus' day asked the Lord this question. Jesus responded with the answer that they were to love the Lord with all their heart, strength, mind, and soul, and they were to love others as they love themselves. Pastor Gary reiterates the words of Jesus that there is no commandment greater than these. Who God is, is love. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Mark, chapter 12, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. Well, as I uh, shared last week when we began chapter 11, uh, Mark's gospel, the first 10 chapters cover a period of about three years, but then it really slows down and from chapters 11 through 16, which is the end of the book uh, of Mark, uh, it only covers one week. And uh, when we come here to chapter 12, we are in what looks like when you Consider it talks about one day and then the next morning and one day and the next morning. This looks to be probably Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life because this last week, the reason why the gospel writer slows down is because John Mark is wanting us to know the intense details of this Passion Week, this time between Palm Sunday and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that final week of his life is what is reflected here in chapters 11 to 16. And so this is probably Wednesday. Now, typically, Jesus being a rabbi, of course, we know more than that, he's Messiah, but being esteemed as a rabbi in that day, he would have gone into the temple court area because it's Passover, and he would teach on the southern steps and in the courtyard area during the daytime. And then at night, he would retreat either to Bethany, the scripture says, where Uh, He was often found lodging at the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, or he would find lodging at uh, the Mount of Olives on the western slope somewhere there, and ultimately the last night of his life in the Garden of Gethsemane on the western slope of the Mount of Olives. So this was his typical schedule during this week 
of Passover leading up to the crucifixion. He would teach during the day, and at night he would retire and find lodging either Bethany or the Mount of Olives. And so this is one of these days now, again, probably Wednesday, when he is teaching here in the temple court area. And just to kind of backtrack a little bit, we left off at verse uh, 18, uh, but what we find starting at verse 13 is that there are three attempts to discredit Jesus by different groups of people. We read here about the Pharisees and the Herodians. We read also about the Sadducees, and then finally we're going to read about a lawyer who's referred to as uh, uh, one of the teachers of the law. If you have a King James Bible, it says a scribe. And uh, these different individuals are going to come and try to test Jesus and they're going to try to discredit him by with trick questions. Of course, you know, you can't you can't ever discredit and you certainly can't trick God, all right? But they're going to do the best they can because the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians and and uh, at least this particular lawyer does not believe that Jesus is Messiah. They don't believe in his in his works. They don't believe in his teachings and they don't accept him as as the promised one. And so they are combative. They are argumentative. They are antagonistic with him in this scene. And we find here in verses 13 to 18 that I did mention last week, but here's where we have the Pharisees and the Herodians teaming up to uh, test Jesus with a political question. Now, typically the Pharisees and Herodians were not friends. They were two Jewish sects, but they often didn't see eye to eye. The Pharisees were was a, a religious sect, and the, the word Pharisee comes from a Hebrew word, that is uh, pronounced parash, and it means separate. They were separatists, they were legalists. Jesus says they were hypocrites, and he says they were proud, and they were anti-Rome. So those kind of things describe the Pharisees. They were separatists. They saw themselves as exclusive and separate. They prided themselves in obeying the letter of the law. They adhered to every nuance of the law, and that made them therefore legalistic. Jesus pointed out how they missed grace because they were so consumed with being right that they often didn't do the right thing. And that's the Pharisees, legalistic, separatists, uh, they prided themselves on uh, adhering to the letter of the law, often missing the greater meaning of the law and thus violating the law, and they were anti-Rome, that they team up here with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians, we don't know very much about the Herodians, even historically. By their name, we know that they were probably a group that was very loyal to King Herod, as the name suggests, Herodians. They were pro-Rome because Herod was you know, and uh, a puppet in the hand of, of the Roman Empire. So if you're a Herodian, you're going to be pro-Rome because you're pro-Herod. They denied the, the uh, or, or rather they were, they favored Greek customs as well. So therefore they, they would be Jews who were considered somewhat Hellenistic in the day. They were kind of worldly Jews. We don't know much about them. There's only three references of the Herodians in all of the Gospels, but they team up here with the Pharisees, though Herodians are pro-Rome, Pharisees are anti-Rome, and they try to trick Jesus with this one question that we uh, talked about last week when they ask, is it right for, for someone to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus gives this wonderful answer about, well, show me a coin. It has Caesar's image on it. And he says, well, give unto Caesar what is Caesar, and, but give unto God what is God's. And he's really speaking about how we as human beings bear the image of God, that we were all created in the image and likeness of God. And therefore, 
we need to give ourselves to God. He first gave himself to us, and in response to him, we need to yield our lives to his lordship. And so Jesus, in effect, is saying, fine, pay taxes, and it's part of, though we don't like taxes, it's part of some of the freedoms we enjoy for, uh, because we enjoy the freedoms of living in the country, it's some of the obligations that we have to understand are part of enjoying the freedoms, and so we accept taxes, though we, we can sometimes argue with the exorbitant rate of taxes, uh, and, and Jesus says, however, the greater issue is if the money belongs to Caesar because that has his image, do you belong to God because you bear his image? So that was one of the areas that he was, uh, that they tried to test him in. That was a political question. Then we come to a spiritual question, starting at verse 18. This one is launched by the Sadducees. Now, just a brief background about the Sadducees. Uh, they denied the resurrection. They denied that there was at life after death at all. They denied the spirit world completely. That is to say, they didn't believe in angels and they didn't believe in demons. And this is very important because it gives insight into the hypocrisy of their question. They don't even believe in angels or demons. And uh, they denied God's sovereignty. The Sadducees believed that everything was completely up to human free will and they completely denied the sovereignty of God. They were uh, also pro Rome and were more allegiant to Rome than, say, were the Pharisees. So the Herodians and Sadducees kind of agreed on the Rome issue, uh, but they would, uh, but the Sadducees would disagree with the Pharisees on many other areas of, of Scripture. So here comes this next sect. So you have you have Pharisees, you have Herodians, you have Sadducees. These are different sects. And, uh, and some would even see them somewhat as like political parties, but that, I don't want you to make too much of a link to that because it's very different from, you know, it's not like these are the Republicans, Democrats, and Libertarians, all right? There's a, a little bit different, but, but, but they are all Jewish here, and they are approaching Judaism from a little bit of a different angle. So here come the Sadducees, verse 18, and it says, And then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, pause for a moment. That part is true. I mean, there's, there's this Levitical law that required for the sake of a woman so that she would not become destitute in this ancient culture, that if she is married to a guy and her husband dies... His brother, if he has a brother, has an obligation to marry what would be his sister-in-law to become his wife, because otherwise the wife then would become pretty destitute. It was She was very dependent on her husband in this culture in this day, and so especially if she had children, and the heritage of the name and the lineage of the tribe that they belonged to all needed to be preserved. And so God made provision that he said, in the law, if there is a woman who is married to a man and her husband dies, if he has a brother, that brother is to marry her. And so the Sadducees are raising this question. They say, well, Moses said that if, that if a woman, you know, her husband dies, then the brother has to marry her. Verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers. So they're going to launch into this hypothetical thing here. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, 
The woman died too. At the resurrection, here's the question, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? So they, they, again, this is completely hypothetical. Here's a woman who's married. Her husband dies. Number one dies. Brother number two marries her. He dies. Brother number three marries her. He dies. Brother number four. And on and on they go, and they stretch it out to seven husbands. And then he dies. Now here's the question. In the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Who's she going to belong to? Now, first of all, notice the hypocrisy of their question. They don't even believe in what? Even believe in the resurrection. And they're asking him a question about something related to the resurrection. You don't even believe in it. What are you asking the question for? So there's hypocrisy here, and, and they're asking this of Jesus. And he answers in verse 24. Are you not in error? Because he says, are you not in error? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses in the account of the bush how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So first thing that Jesus says to them is, you need to understand what marriage is going to look like in heaven. And what he says is that, We will be like the angels in respect of relationship, in in regards to relationship, where there will be neither marrying nor given in marriage, that there will not be in heaven a a distinction between married people and single people, and the married people will still be together, and the single people will still be single in in heaven. It's just going to be all of us are the bride of Christ, and we're married to him, and, and there's no marriage in heaven like there is here on earth. And thus Jesus says, you're going to be like the angels who, who aren't married. I had a couple who've been married for many, many years, and this was, and she came to me one day, she said, this, it, they had a wonderful, happy marriage. She said, this is the hardest verse for me in all of the Bible. She says, because I love my husband. They've been together for almost 50 years. And she said, the idea that in heaven, we're just kind of going to be friends, but we won't be married. He says, it's just, it's just heartbreaking to me. And I said to her, listen, we have to understand that the, 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 the dynamics are going to be so completely different that, and this much I do know that since the Bible says that heaven compared to earth is going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more mourning, no more death. The old order of things has passed away. Behold, all things are made new, that it'll only be better. It, it, everything about heaven will only and always be better. So as much as you might, you know, love your spouse and things will be different in heaven, it'll be a better different and in a way that probably we can't even understand right now, but it'll be a better different. And so uh, Jesus first gives them that lesson that listen, your, your question, although hypothetical, it is not realistic because there is no marriage in general in heaven. That's the first thing that he says to them. But then he tells them that, that they're in error because they don't know the scriptures. And he talks about how God is not a God of the dead, but of the living because God is still in the present tense. He always has been and is and shall be. In fact, his name, when God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus in the burning bush, and Moses asks him, who shall I say sent me when Moses is given this, um, this mandate to go and, and be the deliverer of the people of Israel out of slavery, out of uh, slavery in Egypt? Uh, the, the Lord responds and says to Moses, well, just tell them that I am sent you. 
And, and he gives us his proper name. Yahweh in Hebrew is a translation of I am, and I am is simply a word that means the self-existent one. It is, it is from the Hebrew word to be. It is just a word that means the self-existent one. There is no beginning, there is no end with God. And this is important because Jesus says that the identity of God hinges on one word. Words are very important. And he says here, Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Not I was. I am. Jesus says the identity and understanding of who God is hinges on one word, the word am, in the present tense. Thus, God is still the God of the living, not a God of the dead. You are badly mistaken. It's just remarkable to think about how they they think they can trick Jesus. Well, here comes uh, one more character here. We have uh, a lawyer in verse 28, one of the teachers of the law. Again, if you have a King James Bible, it says a scribe. These were the, the biblical scholars of the day. The scribes were responsible for preserving, learning, and teaching the Word of God. They were very meticulous in what they did because the scribes were responsible for copying texts. You know, today we, you know, since the Gutenberg press, the Bible has been mass produced. And uh, so, you know, we have the convenience of having Bibles that are printed in mass quantities. In the day, you wanted a scroll of the Torah, of, of, of the law of God. Somebody had to write it for you, had to hand write it. And so if you wanted a scroll in, the, in your synagogue for your town, it had to be handwritten by a scribe. It had to be copied. Now, the beautiful thing about the Hebrew language, it's one of the ancient languages, the ancient Syriac and Semitic languages that have numerical values attached to each letter. Hebrew, Arabic, uh, Greek, Latin, they have numerical values attached to each letter. And so what the scribes would do is as they were copying, as they were transcribing from this scroll to a new scroll, the word of God, and as they would transcribe it, actually in Hebrew you're going from right to left instead of left to right, what they would do is after they got to the end of each line, they would add up the numerical value of all the letters so that the math would double-check the accuracy of their letters. So this is a beautiful way that the Hebrew language was preserved and how the Word of God, compared to other ancient manuscripts, contain no errors in the original documents because they were so meticulous about the letters and then adding up the math. And then the letters and adding up the math. And the scribes, if the math didn't add up, they wouldn't scratch out the line and rewrite it. They would destroy the entire scroll and they would rewrite it from the beginning. That's how meticulous. And that, therefore, is why the scribes, when it talks about the teachers of the law, and we, and we say a lawyer, you know, we don't mean it like in the sense of a courtroom lawyer today. These are people who are experts in the law of God. They are scribes. They are the ones who are the most biblical scholars of the day. And so they know the Bible, and they know what you know, we would call our Old Testament. They know it inside and out. And uh, so here comes one of these scribes to Jesus. Now, this, this guy seems genuine at first, but when you compare Scripture with Scripture, Matthew chapter 22, when Matthew records these three incidences here, 
the one with the Pharisees and the Herodians, and then secondly with the Sadducees. And then when Matthew gets here to this teacher of the law, Matthew says that, that this expert was a Pharisee who tested Jesus with this question. So while at first it looks kind of innocent that this guy is genuinely trying to understand what he's going to ask, Matthew gives us the other angle here that this guy actually is trying to test Jesus just like the previous groups were trying to do as well. So here this one teacher of the law comes, verse 28, and heard them debating, meaning the Sadducees and the Pharisees and Herodians. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, the Pharisees and Herodians have asked a political question. The Sadducees have asked a spiritual question. This guy's going to ask a biblical question. Now, imagine asking God a question about the Bible. <laughs> I mean, this is gutsy. Of course, he doesn't you know, believe that it's God, but, but here he goes. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. What is, he, what is he saying here? He's summarizing the law, and he says the greatest commandments are loving God and loving others. Loving God and loving others, and in that order. And he begins here with what is known today, even in Jewish synagogues, as the great Shema. He begins here by quoting from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And it is called the great Shema because the word Shema means to hear or to listen. And that's the way it reads in Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that word one in the Hebrew is a word that means a single plurality. It sounds like a contradiction. Not really. When you say, uh, for example, that my wife and I, you, you say, Terry and you, you're one. That is that same use of that word. If you look at, at a group of people as a team and you say, man, they, they just, they played like they were one. You're talking about the, a plurality that has a single identity. And that is who God is. And he reveals himself. The Trinity is revealed in the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is, it is a word that is plural, but it defines a singular thing. And uh, Jesus says that that is the great command. And then he quotes, continues in Deuteronomy 6, 5, when he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Most people don't have any problem with self-love. I know that there are a lot of books that are written on, you know, loving yourself, and I just think it's nonsense. Most people already love themselves. He says, love your neighbors yourself. Again, loving God and loving others. Now, listen, <laughs> the teacher commends God. Isn't this brilliant? Well said, teacher. The man replied, you are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. You know, he with each group that came, or this individual, Jesus answers clearly and wisely, 
and it shuts their mouths. They have no more questions to ask him. Now, Jesus is going to turn the tables here, and he's going to test their knowledge. Next verse, verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? Thanks for joining Pastor Gary today for this study in the Gospel of Mark on Cornerstone Connection. If you'd like to hear this teaching again or explore additional messages, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc and click on Teachings. You can also download our mobile app. Find the On The Go link under the Teachings tab. Do you live in or near Leesburg, Virginia? If so, we invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30, 10, and 11.45 a.m. We also meet on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Cornerstoneconnection.cc is the place to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. You can also see what's going on during the week and what Cornerstone Chapel offers in the way of small groups, youth ministry, and more. We'd love to meet you, but if you're not able to join us in person right now, that's okay. We're live streaming each Sunday and Wednesday service at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our 11.45 a.m. service also offers interpreting for those who speak Spanish. If you have any questions for us, or if you'd like to share a prayer request, we'd be honored to talk with you. Send us an email at prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but thanks for joining us to study the book of Mark. We hope you'll tune in again here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know